Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. This week's interview is a story about a serial entrepreneur in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He quit a successful consulting career to build his own startup. And like most entrepreneurs, he had a roller coaster of a ride. He had tough moments, such as having to put his mother's apartment up as collateral for a business loan. And he had highs, such as successfully building and selling a business. He started his latest company about four and a half years ago, and he's taken it from zero to over $2 million in annual recurring revenue with over 65 employees and a 1,000 customers. In this episode, he shares his story and how he's built several successful businesses. Uh, we talk in some detail about how to find the right business model for your SaaS business. Uh, we talk about how a freemium model turned out to be a bad decision for my guest. And we discuss the mistakes that he's made along the way and the critical lessons that he's learned about pricing, revenue, and profitability. It's a great conversation, and I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of it. All right. Today's guest is the co-founder and CEO of Run Run It a SaaS product that helps teams to manage tasks, projects, performance, and corporate communication. The company was founded in 2012, is based in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and to date has raised $4.4 million in funding. So today I'd like to welcome Antonio Carlos Suarez. Antonio, welcome to the show. Oh, my pleasure, Amir. Now, let's start by talking about what what drives you, what motivates you. So is is there a is there a quote that maybe you can share with us which is kind of will get us a little bit of an insight in terms of how you think as an entrepreneur? Yeah. Um there's a friend of mine who happens to be a I think an intellectual, one of the most uh, intelligent guys in Brazil. He's called Ricardo Guimarães and once he said to me, "Well, you know, uh, succeeding in the wrong thing is just like failing. And, and that's something that really struck me as lightning and I have been thinking about a lot. And I think that's kind of what has been happening through my whole life, uh, I, especially in the two, my previous two companies. Uh, they were very successful, but in fields that were probably not that great. So I'm trying to make it better this time. Awesome. Yeah, I'd love to talk about those because this is your run, run. It is your third company. And, and I, I want to sort of start from kind of earlier than that. But before we do that, let's just kind of set the context a little bit and, and help the listeners to get a better understanding of run, run it. So in your own words, can you, can you share with the audience what the product does and, and how it's different to maybe other offerings on the market. Yeah. Yeah. You can think of run, run it as a manager's best friend. So what we're trying to do, uh, of course, we are in the work collaborate enterprise work collaboration space, uh, so to say. Uh, so we are basically trying to help managers to get more productivity out of their teams by dealing with time 
task and uh, performance management. So the way it differs from uh, competition uh, is that it has a broader scope than most of the products and as called mixing time uh, priorities, um, uh, time management, performance management, time management uh, into a single application seems to be far more natural and allows for deeper insights. And the other thing is just uh, by having that focus on the manager. Uh, and that's a um, cultural thing that some of the companies in the US uh, don't get uh, is that not every market uh, is as as horizontal uh, as uh, not every company is, is as horizontal as companies are uh, in California, in especially uh, in special, but in the US in a whole or even in Europe. So uh, companies in Brazil run in a different way. And that is also true for company in very different markets. So in whole Latin America, in China, in Russia, in India. So there are very important cultural aspects that need to be taken into account. And, uh, and when it was uh, built for companies that are slightly more uh, hierarchical uh, and that manage uh, things in, an, in, in a different way. Um, so, so that's why the product exists. Got it. So when you talk about horizontal, you're talking about kind of organization structure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking about a mindset. Uh, the way I think about the, the, the most of the products that I see in the U.S. in this specific uh, industry is that they have a self-manage and share mindset. So uh, most of the people are very uh, uh, motivated and very intelligent and if you get them to know what other people are doing uh, they will kind of arrange uh, themselves and arrange their, their, their work and the company will pre perform better so uh, that, that's what I call uh, self-management and share mindset and what we have here in Brazil and in most of the, uh, the emerging uh, market world uh, is, the, is, is a mindset that is more about assigning and controlling, uh, so you 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 definitely have a huge uh, productivity gap. So just just to give you a, a hard figure, uh, the productivity of the Brazilian worker is one fourth of that of the U.S. And that's true for most of other emergent markets. Uh, Brazilian is not even the, Brazil is not even the worst. Uh, and we also have a very uh, the year, number of years of schooling is dramatically different. So it's seven in Brazil, it's 13 in the U.S. Uh, so companies evolve in a different manner to cope uh, with those challenges and also with uh, cultural traits that are uh, very different. And, 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 and therefore, the mindset that you need uh, for um, a, a company to perform in those conditions is different. Yeah, I think those are really good points. And, and, you know, I spent many years when I was at Microsoft working on, uh, global products. And one of the things that you learn very quickly is if you try to build a product for the US and then just expect that by localizing it into different languages, you can go and succeed in any market outside of the US, you fail very quickly because there are so many other aspects 
to each market and understanding as you're sort of describing the the cultural the, the you know the social the social there's so many different aspects that you need to understand uh to be to be successful and i've seen that with lots of examples of companies that have done well in maybe in an international market and then try to go into a neighboring market and even then had difficulties so it's yeah. not just a us thing i think just even even just people just need to kind of understand that there's you know really understand your market before you go into it yeah you you know you got a very interesting point actually there's a if if anyone in the audience wants to go deeper into that issue there's a guy called Gerd Hofstad which is a scholar so he's a social social psychologist who actually he was hired in, by IBM in the 80s to understand why the organization IBM as an organization would work perfectly in some countries and would be a completely mess in other countries and and there was odd because they were using the same processes and the same systems and the same uh, everything uh, and he was hired at the time and he ended up dedicating his whole life uh, to study the, how people uh, behave uh, in in high in corporate structures in different quarters and and he has many articles and many books dedicated to that and there is one thing that i would like to mention that is he has something that is called power distance index which tells uh how comfortable someone is in a hierarchical organization and that's a a, a number that he gets from uh from his studies and and he hangs countries in 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 this scale and in the in the very low scale you have countries like um, northern europe uh where uh, if you are not a part of the decision making process you feel that as illegit as not legitimate and that's not something that you should implement and in the other end of the spectrum you have countries like brazil india china and and many others where people feel comfortable in organizations because they know what to expect from people and and what is expected from them and that happens for reasons that are so different uh, but but by the end of the day uh, people either feel comfortable or un- uncomfortable in hierarchies and that makes a huge difference and 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 that's the whole mindset behind the product yeah fascinating it's a great conversation okay let's let's start by going back to what you were doing before you founded run run it okay uh, so t- tell us a little bit about kind of your entrepreneurial journey that got you to this business yeah uh, i started my uh, uh, i started my ca- my career as a management consulting at monitor uh, in, uh, in in cambridge close to boston and i worked there for a while and i got that I got on that track of uh, getting an mba and i actually entered columbia uh business school but then i realized that it was totally not what i wanted to do in my life and i dropped and i actually i didn't drop because i didn't uh, uh started from the beginning I, i decided that a couple of months before i started uh, i should have started and i came back to brazil and i decided that i want uh, that i want to be an entrepreneur and the first thing i i did was actually actually I did a, a small consulting firm that lasts for that lasted for 
a few months because as we started getting customers in, one of the customers was a publishing house that needed to be uh, to have a turnaround and we raised money for that publishing house and the guy, the investor demanded that both me and my partner uh, join at the company as managers uh, in, in order for him, because he sees there was a lot of uh, secret creative talent, but no management talent in the company. So I actually joined the company and I became uh, there was a very aggressive stock option plan. So I joined the company and the company grew a lot in a, in a space that was very difficult. And that, that's why I, I uh, mentioned that quote in the beginning. Because uh, making a, a a company in the Brazilian publishing market to grow by 12 times in seven years was probably very successful, but still a very uh, something not not very intelligent to do. Uh, but if, but it, by the end of the day, it was uh, uh, the, the company became very profitable and it's a market leader and and it's still around. Uh, still as a market leader in this industry, just happens to be an industry that, that is not that good. And while I was uh, running this company, I get really excited about uh, digital content and especially by mobile uh, content. So in 2007, I decided to leave the company and I sold my share back to the company. The company was very profitable, so it uh, uh, ended up buying, me, uh, buying my shares back in 18 months or so. Uh, and I uh, started the company uh, to do initially uh, mob mobile con content. That was 2007. And in Brazil, we didn't even have smartphones nor uh, 3G networks. That happened in 2008. Uh, and, but when we started that, we started, uh, one of the things that we started doing was actually building apps. And that company became the largest uh, Brazilian uh, enterprise uh, mobile app developer. We grew from zero to over 120 employees in four years or less. And I, I, we had 75 enterprise customers and 250 uh, inter, uh, apps published for those companies. Um, and the company was, we actually acquired Aqua hired uh, two companies in the way, uh, two, two smaller com competitors in the way. And by the end of the day, uh, while we were trying to raise, we, we bootstrapped uh, from the beginning, not because we wanted to, uh, but because uh, we were trying to raise money in 2008. And that was crazy because, right. uh, yeah, you had the whole banking crisis and we just got the doors uh, on our face, so nobody wanted to talk to us. So we we struggled through that, uh, and that was actually a, a lot of struggling. Uh, to be honest, we spent I, I I not only put all my money in the company, uh, but I put every the money of everybody I knew in the company, and I stopped paying taxes, and I uh, get mo uh, get loans from anyone I could, including, uh, I mean, everyone, like not only banks, but uh, people who lend money uh, for high risk uh, businesses. And 
and we also i mean we, we did anything that that was uh, that i actually had my mother's apartment as uh as a collateral for loans uh, that we took uh to have uh, working capital for the company because the company was growing a lot wow. so in the it, we were struggling so much uh but in the other way the, the company was growing and we simply didn't have the correct capital structure for the company uh, but by the end of the day, the company was do, was do, uh, doing uh, good, and so, was so good this was growth. this was more of solving a a cash flow issue, right? Because you yes. say it's it's not like the business wasn't doing well and you were running out of money and you needed more, but it was like you were growing, but you just didn't have the cash flow and you needed to find additional funds. Is that a kind of a way to characterize that? Sort of. Sort what of. That, yeah, but first because we did a lot of wrong things in the beginning. So in the beginning, I would, I would say that we were we probably spent money in projects that didn't uh, perform at all. So we we actually lose money on lots of initiatives. Uh, but even for that initiative that was uh, uh, doing very good, uh, we had a licensing model. So uh, we were receiving uh, small amounts, uh, small monthly fees for our uh, customers, from our customers. And that takes a while for you to be able to cover all your fixed costs and all your company costs on that. So even if, it, if, the, if the business is growing, uh, you still need a lot of money uh, to cover for your fixed costs while uh, you are getting uh, that, that fees in. Uh, so, so uh, yeah. In the, in the end, it was uh, more a capital uh, flow issue. But in the beginning, uh, we didn't. We simply didn't have the correct capital structure to build a pro, to build a uh, uh, to build this company, and we learned it the hard way. And, and I, I assume your mother's apartment is safe now. It, it, now it is. <laughs> now it is, and she's and she's very happy. Uh, but 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 it, but it took a while. And while we were trying to raise a Series B uh, in terms of size, it would have been a Series B. Then we got uh, an offer, uh, a bid from a company that was that had been acquiring companies in our space, and that we have known for quite a while. Uh, and we have. Uh, try to make partnerships or try to or, or run into um, uh, into RFPs and and I mean we have been reaching each other in the market for a while and this company ended up uh, it's a very large uh, Brazilian uh, media conglomerate it ended up making a bid for the company that was very aggressive so we we, we actually sold uh, our company uh, to that uh, uh, media conglomerate, which later, uh, one or two, well, a few, two years later, actually sold uh, the, the company that bought our company to Dentsu, uh, to the Dentsu Wages Network Group. Uh, so they, they also had a successful exit based on, on that company. So it was, seemed to be kind of a solid business, but it didn't grow as fast as we wanted. It was growing like 70% per, per year. Uh, and it and it was a profitable business. It was uh, doing like 35% EBITDA margins, uh, which is great. Uh, but but if you ask me, it it was I I can tell you the exact number uh, for conf- because of confidentiality issues. But it was in the range of uh, of 20 million dollars um, 
ARR. Uh, and if you asked me if we could have make the company uh, 40 or 50 million, uh, probably. Uh, but if you asked me if this company could ever be a 100 or 200 or a $1 billion company, I would definitely say that I wouldn't believe that in that. And that's why, that's why we decided to sell the company uh, and, and start it all over again. So wh- wh- where did you come up with the idea for Run Run It? Yeah, it, ha- it came up from the challenges we had as managers of that company. So we, that company was basically uh, licensing a platform, but also doing a lot of service on top of it uh, for those enterprise customers. And and we were dealing at, at any point with like 25 or 30 different projects at the same time. And the customers were very big, so they, uh, they basically changed the scope and uh, do dates for projects uh, the way they wanted, and we just had to, to accept it and 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 uh, if much uh, to discuss uh, price. So we, so it was a company that was very difficult to manage, uh, and because there were lots of moving parts everywhere and a lot of people involved. And we were trying to use the products that were available, products that have that mindset that we mentioned before, and it was actually not working. So we were very pragmatic about what we needed, and we started building that. And at the time, it was just an internal hack, and we didn't, we never wanted it to be a software company. We never uh, thought about uh, using making that into a product and even less into a company. And actually, when we sold uh, our company, this product was didn't come, uh, was not included in the deal, almost by accident. Basically, because nobody was interested, uh, nor the buyer, nor ourselves, nor the guy who actually uh, built built it as a pet project, uh, who is the, the, the who, who legally is probably would have been the the owner of the software, but not even him was interested at the time. Uh, uh, and and it took a while uh, to realize that it could uh, be a, a product and a, and a company. So that's that's really interesting because this this tool that you created to solve your own problem has grown into a sizable business. I mean, can you can you kind of share with the audience in terms of like just kind of revenue or some any kind of numbers to help them understand like where you are with Run Run It right now? Yeah, sure. Uh, we have 1,010 companies right now. Uh, we are grossing $2 million in ARR, and we have 65 employees uh, right now. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's awesome. And, and, you know, congratulations on, on hitting the, the, those milestones. You know, 1,000 paying customers, $2 million in annual recurring revenue is, is awesome. And I think that it's easy because maybe if the tool had just been included as part of the deal through the acquisition, maybe it would have just sat there for years and nobody would have done anything with it. Um, I'm 100% sure it would have died. Yeah. And so, sure. so I mean, it's not just about the idea. It's also about the execution. And, and I think that, you know, you guys took took the idea and kind of grew it in something. One thing I'm curious about is your your co-founders at run run it are franklin and patrick yes are, are were they the same guys who were working with you on your previous company 
in my previous companies, as, uh, to be honest, Patrick has been working with me since Monitor, to be honest, I hired him there. And Franklin, uh, while I was at the, at the publishing house, I was a supplier for Franklin. He was uh, the value-added services is mere for Telemig, which is a Brazilian telecom carrier, and I was and I was supplying uh, content for him to deliver as SMS ringtones, uh, wallpapers, and the things that existed back in 2004 or 2006. So we have known each other for quite quite a while. Wow. Wow. Okay. So let's say you, you're you guys decide you're going to turn this this tool of yours into a product and a and a software business. When you, since you had the history and you'd been working together and you had kind of gone through the process of having successes and failures and having made some mistakes along the way, what what was that initial conversation like? Like when you guys got together, what did you decide that you were going to do differently with Run Run It? Yeah, we, actually, I know that one of the things that you, you know, that your audience is particularly interested is on validation, right? As the whole process of getting uh, from an idea to a business. And uh, I would say that the first thing was just uh, being aware of our, of the challenges that we were facing as managers and that we were not uh, being able to, to solve them using the products that were available. So that was probably a first, uh, a, 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 like a first spark. Uh, then uh, when Franklin started building it and he was, he started just mentioning it, mentioning it uh, to people and he got a few companies to start using it even, even before Aorta started using it. Then he came to Aorta and said, uh, uh, he, he came to me and said, hey, I think I got something that will be able to uh, that will help me to uh, manage you because I was uh, the, the CEO and I was responsible for the sales department and be, be sure that the sales department was uh, from where most of the company problems were coming in. Uh, we were the ones saying yes to customers and bringing problems uh, to, the IT, to the IT and to the development team. Uh, so he was, so being able to see that the software actually solved the problems that we had there was a second layer of, of validation. And then uh, after we sold the company, uh, that's, the, that's a funny thing. Uh, when, when we sold the company, uh, Patrick and I especially, because frankly, he lived in another city. He lived in Belo Horizonte and I lived in Sao Paulo. And Aorta was, had, had uh, offices in both places. So I was not with Franklin all the time. Uh, so I was, but I was with Patrick a lot. A lot. So we were discussing what what problem would be uh, big enough for a solution to be available, and uh, and I started to get very excited about uh, about the what at the time was called social business software space. There was McKinsey issued a white paper saying that uh, there was a one trillion dollar. Uh, of value to be released by co- uh, from companies by using social collaboration software, and Yammer was acquired uh, by Microsoft for 
four billion dollars or something, and Jive made an IPO uh, that was like a billion dollar IPO, and I was very excited about about this space. And I went to talk to Franklin and said, "Hey, Franklin, look at the, everything that is happening in this space." And he just mentioned to me, he just said to me, "Well, Antonio, but you know, you know, we already do that. You 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 don't don't you?" And I said, "No, actually, I I don't know how how come." And he said, do, do you remember when ran it? And I actually, I didn't. Uh, I didn't know what it was. And said, no, that thing we use uh, to manage uh, projects, to have the timesheets, to set priorities. Ah, yes, I do. I remember. <laughs> uh, I said, oh, no, there are, 60, there are 60 companies using it. I said, how, how is that possible? How 60 companies using it? It's an internal rack. And he said, yeah, sort of. But uh, do you remember the guy that came to make our end of the year video? He started asking people what was that thing on their screen and they explained it to him and he said that he would like to use it and then the, the girl that was our uh, customer manager he left she left the company and she called in saying that she came to a company that is a mess and it's just like aorta was before i started using it and then there is and then he started telling stories uh, about things i said well there are 60 companies that are using this software that at, at the time was really difficult to use. The UX was really bad. Uh, and, and But, but if, if we uh, didn't find a solution and those companies are saying that they are not finding a solution, maybe there is a, uh, an opportunity there. So that, that having those 60 free users was probably a third layer of validation that, that we had. And so, so wait, I, let me just clarify one thing. So before you had even launched Run Run It, the the product that became Run Run It was this kind of like this internal tool. Yeah. And you had already got 60 companies using it before you launched the, yes. the business. So it, yes. it was just yeah. it was it was a free tool and people would yes. just hear about it and then say, "Oh my god, I'm having those problems. Can I can I yes. use it too?" Yes, and then one thing that is probably interesting for the audience is to know that when we we, we just set a page uh, on the web and we, where we you could create your account and it was and we would say hey that's that's free uh, up to five users and then you need to pay but you but we are not charging for it but we will at some point so uh, if you want more than five users just let us know and we will uh, open it for free. Uh, to you, and we'll let you know in advance when, when that day comes. And that started building uh, the expectation that the larger customers would be charged at some point. And they, and since they would have to, to ask uh, for us to, to to have more seats, then we would at least uh, get their, get one contact point with them that we could return to later. So that that was probably a good thing. And, and so the, 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 uh, a fourth layer of validation that we went through uh, was trying to get investors in. And, and to be honest, we had sold the, uh, our previous company, we had sold us, so we actually had the money to make us a seed round. Um, uh, but we decided from the beginning, and, it, and that was a lesson that we learned on our previous company, and, and that uh, there are actually two important lessons here. Uh, one was, is that uh, you 
if you don't have the correct capital structure, the company will gravitate to the capital structure that you have. So uh, Aorta started, wanted to be a product company. We had something that was, uh, that companies like, like Shermarine or Titanian, uh, it, was a mobile, it was supposed to be a, a mobile app development framework. Uh, and we started licensing that. But as we didn't have the money uh, to uh, sustain that business model uh, that was based on low, on very low monthly fees, uh, we end up adding a lot of service on top of that. And the company became a service company that had a product that would help it to have higher margins and, and a better uh and better execution. Uh, so, it, it, so it was, uh, it could build, build apps faster and, and in a way there was, there was more reliable. And, but it, by the end of the day, when you sold the company, it was almost a service company and it was not a product company anymore. And, and at that time, uh, we front run it, we wanted to build a product company and we want to stick with, we, with that. So we need to have the right capital structure from the beginning. And although we did have the money to seed the company. Uh, uh, we decided to bring investors in both for validation, but also, uh, and that's the second lesson, uh, because there was a window of opportunity, uh, especially in emerging markets. Uh, if you don't get the window uh, right, uh, you're, you are, uh, you're screwed. Uh, if, and what I mean by that is that uh, if you remember in 2010 or 2011, probably 2011, Brazil was in the cover of the Economist and you have the Christ as a rocket and Brazil was about to uh, go big, big time. It's a huge economy. It's growing fast. It's yep. democratic and everything is right. So everybody was pulling money in Brazil and that happens and that started in 2010 that goes through 2011 and probably 2012 and then things started changing and in 2013 we were again in the cover of the economist but for the wrong reasons we were there uh, because brazil had blown it and then right now we we are in the in a third year of recession we have impeached our former president we had the largest corruption scandal in probably in the history of the of humankind uh, so the window for brazil uh, i think things are changing and that window might be opening uh, next year but it's it was totally closed uh, uh, last year or this year and that was the same kind of thing that we faced in 2008 while we were trying to raise money for Aorta. So there the window was, was closed. So we could, there was the banking crisis, the US banking crisis, and, and we couldn't uh, raise money at the time. So we knew that although we were in a very uh, good moment, and everybody was really excited about Brazil. We should be raising money at that point because that might not last. And and actually, that was uh, that proved to be almost prophetic because it didn't last. And then right now, if we didn't have the correct uh, capital structure, we would have been we would 
uh, have a very hard time uh, raising money, we would probably not be able to do it. And we would, again, uh, be struggling with the idea of selling service on top of our product. And and then we would ha- we would go the other way again, which is not a bad way uh, by any means. Uh, but it's not the way to build a hundred or a million dollar uh, turnover company or a billion uh, dollar company. Definitely, uh, I don't believe uh, uh, it, it would be it would be possible. So, so, so that that is something that is very important. Yeah, I, I think that I mean I don't think there's anything wrong with building a, a services company, and I think there are uh, plenty of examples of. Um, SaaS founders who have had some kind of services business as a way to help them fund their their SaaS business when they weren't able or didn't want to raise money. But I think the point you're making is that it becomes an issue when you don't have the funds and you go down the route of building services as part of your offering and it fundamentally changes the sort of the the vision and the strategy of what your business is about yes and you can certainly go back to it and that was what that was why what we were trying to do at aorta when we started that uh series b raising uh but 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 it just went another way so i i think there's nothing bad and i think uh, you can you, you, even if you go that a long way you can still get it back uh but that's that adds a lot of complexity and that makes you lose focus and you lose market timing and you and you have to really uh understand that there is a trade off and the trade off that we that that I that I'm doing in run run it is having is being more diluted than than I, I probably uh, could uh, but trying to keep focus uh, and uh, to build the product the, the company and the product that I, I really that is our vision. Let's talk about how you went from sixty users using the free product to a thousand paying customers what what were kind of what was one of the kind of the instrumental um strategies that you used to get the word out about run run it yeah i think there were two moments that were very different and we we might uh, be getting to a third moment now. So the first moment was, as I mentioned before, uh, so the, the, the product was there uh, in, in the web, it was free. And probably without thinking too much about it, we decided that it would be a freemium product. And we and 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 choosing that. So when the product actually became good and we had a, a better UX um, and everything was kind of in place, uh, we started uh, doing uh, both PR and paid media, performance media, and 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 we already had that base of users. I think at that point we had six hundred. Uh, free companies using even even before we started uh, 
uh, advertising the product with paid media, just just with PR. I think we got uh, close to to 600 companies uh, using it. So we had some some companies that were, I would say, have had been acquired before um, the product was actually launched. So, so, so from that beginning, from that moment, the freemium. Uh, strategy, and I, I would definitely call it a marketing strategy, not a business model, uh, was very successful. So we get a lot of word of mouth. So having a, having that that uh, that freemium version, and getting it publicized, and doing PR, and doing everything that we could in terms of uh, marketing effort, and uh, to had uh, to get the word uh, in the market. Uh, it made the product spread really quickly. So the, the freemium strategy was very uh, important and was very successful in the beginning. So many but, many people would kind of look at the, the freemium model and, yeah, say, every, and say it's not just marketing, it is a business model as well. But that wasn't the case for you guys, right? Yeah, the, and, and, and I'll, I'll make that... that uh, differentiation now, uh, which is, I, I really, of course, at the time we thought it was a business model. Uh, and of course, the, the way the product works uh, makes a lot of sense for people to add more users uh, on top of it as time as times goes by. Uh, if, if I mean, if you are not in a very small company and and it made sense, and we made uh, money. The price point was very low, so that, that was another thing. So the price point was very low, and that you could use it for free for uh, up to five users. And people were talking a, a lot about it, and everybody was happy because it was just so cheap, and etc. And uh, and and the product went. Uh, I wouldn't call it went viral, but uh, it, it had a lot of success in, in, in terms of people getting to know it. Um, How much did you, did you start charging for people who had more than five users? Yes, it was, uh, it, it was 20 reais, which in dollar terms, it was like $6.5 per month. So it was very uh, cheap. And, th- and that, that for a 10 seat account. Uh, so that was very cheap, and and that was why the product spread a lot. But then we started to realize that the unit economics were not good, and that we actually need to raise prices. And and to be honest, at some point I was talking to a guy uh, in in San Francisco, and he was saying, "Did you realize that you actually need like?" Uh, at our ARP at the time was probably like twenty dollars or so, and he was saying, oh, "Did you realize that you actually need like two hundred thousand customers to have a one hundred million turnover uh, company?" And uh, and uh, and he was absolutely right. And that that there is something that really get into our mind, and we started thinking that of course that's doable. There are many companies that have far larger user bases, but, but there's, that's something very difficult. So we also started thinking that uh, the whole thing was wrong, like having a, a very low price point uh, for a, uh, and a freemium model for a product that adds uh, as much value as run, run it this, 
simply doesn't make much sense. And the fact that it has this broader scope make it more difficult for people to understand. So uh, just waiting for uh, free users to become uh, paying uh, uh, users and using the product in all in all its depth was uh, in a completely uh, self-service base was probably not right. So we started adding uh, inside sales team uh, teams on top of it and started reaching customers and started seeing better conversion rates. And we were just see seeing that uh, the, pro the price point was so just so wrong. And we actually rose it like four or five times in, in, in terms of in, in dollar uh, terms. It was like a 12x uh, price increase. Uh, and, and, and I'd like to get back to that in a moment. Uh, but so we started raising prices. We started adding inside sales. We started uh, touching customers. And by the end of the day, we started changing our uh, Freeman model into a trial model. And that's that, and that's for basically for two reasons. One is that uh, saying someone that something is free and uh, is just so powerful that it's so difficult to get the guy to pay and to pay a lot uh, after he had that initial mindset. Uh, that that is it just adds so much friction uh, to to the relationship. Uh, that it, it's probably not worth it. And and on the other uh, hand, you also, in terms of the, your sales team management, not having a date for the, in which the customer needs to decide is, is so bad because uh, reps would have literally hundreds of customers that they have reached and that the customers said that they were very happy with the product and that they would buy the product but uh, probably not today. And so they had those very close, uh, very close to closing uh, accounts and in such a large number that it was just un unmanageable. Uh, and it, it, was, it was just a mess. Uh, so, so, so the second moment, I would say that, so the first moment, Freeman, was very important. We get lots of customers and lots of users, and that and that was great. Uh, but not not as much from a unit economics uh, point of view. And then when we when we started raising prices and we move into inside sales and we uh, change it from freemium to trial, uh, then we started to be able to manage our unit economics better. And and to make the the, the numbers really uh, far better, and and to build revenue uh, on top of of those customers, and and so that would be a second uh, a second moment, and 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 I think those were very different and very important. Okay, so now now instead of a freemium model, you you give people a fourteen day trial, and then after yes. that, if they want to start with the the lowest plan uh, monthly, it works out to about twelve dollars per user now. So somebody who was using a five user plan would pay if they were paying monthly, they would be paying sixty dollars 
a month now. Yeah. How did that work? I mean, you, 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 I know you said that you were telling people the five user plan is free now, but at some point we're going to start charging. Um, when you actually did start charging for that, was, what was the reaction and, and, and was it, was it difficult to, to make that transition? So in the very beginning, uh, when we were from li- literally from zero to close to zero, uh, I would say that the friction was very low. Uh, people felt that they were getting a lot of value. And honestly, it was not a big deal. It was really cheap. But as the product probably started, uh, uh, they probably started to cost more. Um, and especially when we started to raise prices, because there was two different uh, uh, two different things. One was uh, raising prices for new customers, and, and that was actually not difficult to do. We would see a drop uh, in sales for probably 15 days or so, and then we would get to our uh, we would get back to our conversion uh, rates. So that that's um, and that that we have done a number of times, uh, so, so probably four or five times, uh, and we we saw basically the same pattern. So it says that people were actually getting value out of it. So it was just more difficult for people who first who had their first contact with a price point, and then when they came back to buy, there was a different price point. Uh, so for those people, so that it was uh, more difficult. And for those people we use, we would probably uh, uh, issue uh, coupons and do discounts to get them in the price that they saw for the first time. So that was how we handle uh, that, that transition uh, from uh, raising prices from one point to the other. Uh, but then there is, and, and, and you know, there is one very interesting thing that happens or when when you are raising prices, is that you and that, that that's that's very interesting. You get negative uh, net revenue churn. That's that, and that happens because uh, but not immediately. But uh, as you are raising prices, after you start passing through the lifetime of say uh, a significant part of your portfolio, then you you actually start. Uh, having people who are upselling uh, on the new price and and you are losing customers on the old price. Uh, so we are losing like those 20 highs uh, accounts and, and the customers are upselling from those uh, say that they were on a 50 plan and they are upselling to an 80 plan. So you get a lot of revenue coming from upselling and not that much uh, being actually lost from churned customers. I mean, you, of course, your logo churn, it, it, your churn in terms of number of customers is what it is. Uh, but your revenue net churn, when you account both for upselling and canceling uh, revenues, uh, it's very easy to get that number negative. And that's probably uh something that might be beneficial at, at some point either during uh you you can actually plan for that 
in a in a fundraising process to have those metrics and i mean the the, the most uh, experienced people will notice what is happening in terms of dynamics but it's still it's a beautiful number to show uh, but then there's another thing the other thing is uh, when you change prices for existing customers and that's something that that we have given a lot of thought into it whether we should do it or not and we for most of the of our mentors and advisors including the ones in the valley they said that we should uh, I actually learned a new uh, expression that is grandfathering I didn't know that word yeah. so they were saying that we should stop we, we should stop grandfathering our customers and that they should pay uh, the correct value for the product, whatever it is. And, and we did that with advance, we did, uh, discounts, we did, uh, we managed a lot, but still, uh, it was very important in terms of revenue. You can get like a six month growth or a year growth, uh, just by adjusting prices on your portfolio. But at the same time, you have, you face a lot of churn. Uh, and so, so that will offset part of it, uh, but still it's probably very uh, beneficial in terms of, in terms of exclusively of, of uh, recurring revenue. Uh, but it's also very, it's also bad for the brand. So it was the, the first time we had people uh, saying bad things about our company uh, in our life. We used to be... Uh, loved by everybody uh, especially uh, from the from the memories even from the memories of those free period or the freemium period or the very low price point period uh, but when people started paying uh, a value that was probably uh, right in terms of, of the benefit that they are getting uh, from the product uh, some of those uh, customers uh, felt that we that they probably deserve a better treatment because they uh, believed in us in the from the beginning and and I think they are right uh, to some extent and we we managed that uh, as much as we could, as we could with with uh, discounts with and with other things uh, uh, but that has a cost so that has a, a benefit there is very as uh, significant. Uh, you can add a lot of revenue. You will face uh, churn, and you can and and that, you know, pure from a pure, purely mathemat mathematical point of view, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but there is one thing that is uh, on the soft side and very subjective. It is how much of a damage you do uh, to your brand, and. How do you handle that emotionally? Because as a founder, you want people to love your product and you don't want people, you're not probably not prepared uh, for people to say bad things about uh, about your company. And that happens to, to a certain extent. Uh, and, and that's the... the I mean, that, that's a tough place yeah. to be because if you if you start out and you're charging a very low price for your product... And then you think to yourself, I'm going to, I'm going to grandfather these people, these early adopters into this price because, you know, they believed in us. They, they kind of 
you know, started paying for this thing before anyone else kind of really kind of, you know, believed in what we were doing. The, the economics of your business might not work as you found out. But then the other side of it is, well, if you then don't grandfather those people and start charging them more, then you potentially get backlash and, and a lot of neg- negative PR from, from doing that. So if you were doing this again, going through this process again from the beginning, what would you have done or, or would you have still taken the same approach as you did? Uh, if you ask me what what, what would actually happen uh, if we decided had to do that again in another company, I, I'm 100%. Even if you ask right now uh, what the, the three of uh, founders think about it, uh, we will discuss the same way we did before uh, doing it. Honestly, I don't think, uh, like Patrick, he's very pragmatic. He's 100% comfortable with what happened and said, hey, we are in a, uh, we got our uh, unit economics right. We got growth. We, right now, uh, this uh, bad PR stuff uh, is uh, behind us. And people are, New customers are saying wonderful things about the product and everything. So I'm totally comfortable with, it, with that. That's, that's Patrick's voice. Uh, if you ask Franklin, he would say, I would not do it again. I feel that we have betrayed people. And so that's really, really difficult. It's a trade-off. And the, the one thing that I would have done differently, I would probably ex- have had extended uh, deeper discounts for larger periods. Uh, so it would, uh, I would still do the uh, the price change in the portfolio, and I would, I, and I would probably be softer uh, on the way it was implemented, uh, though it can turn back to you very easily because people talk to each other uh, immensely more than than we believe. And and once I started being soft, everybody would know it was just a matter of asking that they would get it, and they would ask, and the the, the effect would uh, be far less significant, uh, at least for a year or so. Uh, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a tough movement, but 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 I, I have been I, we have, and I think that most of the audience have probably suffered that uh, as consumers of SaaS. I just mentioned one company that that raised prices a number of times, and that probably lots of us uh, use them, which is Intercom. Yeah. Uh, so we were probably one of the first uh, users of Intercom. We started paying like, I think our first bills were probably like $70 or something. And then at some point we were paying $1,000. And we had been through a number of uh, at least two price uh, changes, and 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 that's life. So probably for us who are entrepreneurs in the software business, we probably understand that what unit economics are and the value that we are backing, getting from those products, and I think they are charging totally right. Uh, and but but for for people in other segments, so people so. Uh, we serve people in like a uh, digital marketing agencies 
professional services companies, IT services companies. So some of those segments understand that better than others. Uh, and some company sizes understand are more or less sensitive than others. So I think you really need to, to uh, look at your use, user base and see uh, what do you think are the, the most sensitive uh, pockets there and segments there and, and decide that. But honestly, from a purely mathematical point of view, purely economic point of view, it, it probably makes a lot of sense because most of the SaaS companies started charging too little because the product's not that deep. And then the product starts to get really good and deliver a lot of value. And they are probably uh, charging uh, not as much as they should. Okay, I want to get uh, – we're almost out of time, so I want to get onto the lightning round. But before we do that, quickly, when we started talking about this, you those were, you talked about those two moments, but then you said there there might also be a, a third moment in, in terms of uh, your growth. Yes, that, 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 is, that is something that – that is a working process. Uh, and I'll be very candid about it uh, and say that I'm not sure. Uh, that's why I'm, I'm saying that, that it might be uh, a third moment because we are seeing uh, 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 some very large customers using our product in a way that uh, with value propositions that were different uh, from uh, the one that we started the product uh, with uh, so some companies are using it for like managing uh, capex versus opex allocation uh, decisions from very large companies and and the way we sell the product to those companies using our in, basically inbound marketing and uh, inside sales is totally uh, out of touch with the way those larger companies buy do, this kind of product. Uh, so we are starting to explore the idea of using uh, channels, especially uh, value-added resellers. Uh, and that's something very new, something that we have been uh, testing for like a couple of months with a very limited number of partners. Uh, but that, if that proves to be successful, it would give access to a market that is different from the one we started and that demands... Uh, both in terms of marketing and sales, uh, completely different uh, process. So there might be a third moment uh, coming in, but 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 I'm not not hundred percent sure about it yet. That's very interesting. I'll have to follow up with you sometime and and find yeah. out whether it turned out to be the case or not. Hopefully, there is <laughs> yeah, a, totally. a happy story to tell. Okay, uh, let's get on to the lightning round. So I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Just uh, try to answer them as quickly as you can. You ready? Yeah. All right. What's the best piece of business advice that you ever received? Uh, it got to be that thing about succeeding and the wrong thing is failing. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? It will sound strange, but there's a, <laughs> there's a book called The Diamond Cutter. Uh, that is actually written by a Buddhist monk. And it's very interesting, and I'm not going to uh, 
tell you much about what it is. Uh, it's it, it's not a big book, so go read it. It's very interesting. The Diamond Cutter, interesting. The Diamond Cutter by right. uh, Gash, uh, Michael Roach, and Lama Christie McNally. All right, we'll include that in the show notes. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful entrepreneur? Uh, I believe it's endurance. It's being able to handle frustration for a long time because sometimes things uh, get longer uh, to happen than you expect. What's but your... That, that doesn't mean that it will not happen. Yes, right, <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? Uh, I, w- I would not say that Ramon is my favorite productivity tool because nobody will believe it, though it is. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna say uh, a, a, a habit that that I think is very interesting, uh, which is every time I go on a business trip. And usually when I go, I, I end up talking to a lot of people. Like I have been to China uh, just a few weeks ago and talked to companies, investors, and uh, people on, uh, in the startup scene and everything. And so every night I write uh, something that I call News from the Front, which is kind of a journal. And it's uh, mix uh, uh, hard data with very emotional information that, of, of feelings that I'm having while uh, getting through that that uh, experience, and I write every uh, I write about every uh, encounter that I had, every in- interesting conversation that I had, and I send it to my partners just to have it recorded recorded uh, somewhere, and and to read it later, like six months later or years later, it's just so interesting. So uh, I think that's an an habit, and it helps you to sleep. And that's very, very important because you get so excited because you talk to so many people and you uh, just before going to bed, you open your laptop, write that thing down, download it from your mind, relieve all the things, and then you are completely empty and ready uh, to sleep. So it's, it's, it's great. That's a great idea. What's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? I would uh, actually I would love to deal with health insurance and health plans because they seem so abusive all over the world. In Brazil, it's absolutely ridiculous, and I'm seeing all this thing about Obamacare and about uh, uh, health uh, insurance in the U.S. and in China, uh, I got amazed by uh, how it works. And I think it's so wrong everywhere. It, it really deserves thinking because it changes people's lives, and there's. Of the opportunity is just so huge. Yeah, I think there are probably millions of people who would uh, love to have a better alternative with that, just just in the U.S. alone. But well, yeah. Um, all right. So, what's uh, an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? Even the people here in the company, I don't think they know that I have been the first uh, Brazilian to climb Aconcagua during the winter. I was a high altitude uh, mountaineer for like. 10 years or so in my life, I climbed probably 20 or 30 mountains up, uh, above 7,000 meters. Wow. And, and that, was, that, that, that ascent was never repeated. So it was really, really, really tough. And it was something that I started doing. So I, I don't think people actually even know that I did it at some point. Wow, that's pretty <laughs> impressive. Uh, and finally, what is one of your most important passions outside of your work? Uh, I think it's endurance sports. 
So now I do road cycling and, and I take it very seriously. So endurance sport, endurance sports is such a big part of my life. Antonio, thank you for joining me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, it's been fun. Uh, it, it, was, it was awesome. It was uh, so good to speak to you, Amir. I uh, hope the audience likes it. Yeah, no, definitely. I think there's there's a ton of value and 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 the lessons that you share there. I think that's that's great, great insights and 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 just valuable advice. I think for so many SaaS entrepreneurs. Now, if people want to find out uh, more about Run Run It, they can go to runrun.it. Don't go to runrunit.com because I tried that and it took me to some dodgy site that i think tried to <laughs> install something on my computer um, so um yeah run run.it and if they want to get in touch with you what's the best way for them to do that uh just write me an email uh ac suarez at run run.it um it'll be my pleasure cool so that that is a c s o a r e s at run run.it yes Cool. Antonio, thanks again. It's been a pleasure. I wish you all the best. My pleasure. Cheers.